This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Boy, uh, the never-ending saga or circus that is uh, the U.S. uh, President Trump uh, uh, presidency, I guess. Uh, You you just don't know on any given day which direction it's going to head into. Uh, Today, Rex Tillerson, U.S. Secretary of State, uh, is in Russia. And uh, has basically said to uh, to Russia, you either side with uh, with the United States and the allies and like minded countries on Syria or embrace Iran, uh, Hezbollah and uh, uh, the Syrian leader Assad, al-Assad. And if that's not a line in the sand, I don't know what is. Uh, Boy, we've come a long way from what once people called a bromance between uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. To talk more about all of this, Simon Palomar is with us, research fellow and expert on Canadian foreign policy, arms control, and political violence for the Center for International Governance Innovation. And with us now, Simon, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. So how do you think Tillerson will be welcome today? Oh, I can't imagine they're going to be thrilled to see him in Moscow. Uh, it's uh, you know quite a change from a few years ago when uh, Vladimir Putin personally uh, you know awarded Tillerson with a you know a, a, a medal recognizing you know Exxon and Tillerson's contributions to Russia and friendship between um, between Tillerson and the Russian people. So he'll get a he'll get a rough welcome, I think. But the fact is that his counterpart, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, uh, didn't cancel the meeting, which really, I think, late last week looked like a distinct possibility suggests that, you know, even if there are some uh, recriminations and some rough words between Lavrov and, and Tillerson, that Lavrov still wants to talk business and, um, and and discuss these issues, even if uh, even if the the gap between the two countries is um, much larger than it was a couple of weeks ago. So, what's the objective of this visit? Well, I mean this uh, this meeting was planned for a while, but of course, last week's events changed it. I mean, at this point, you know, it looks like well, it doesn't look like American policy on Syria is very much up in the air. You got an active debate going on inside uh, the White House, inside the Department of State, inside the Department of Defense, and probably inside the National Security Council about what posture the United States should take towards Syria. A week ago or a week and a half ago, it was prioritize ISIS and don't worry about the Assad government. Now it's hold the Assad government to account for war crimes. And Tillerson is going to Russia immediately after meeting with his G7 counterparts. And it looks like his G7 uh, foreign minister, Piers, gave him a fairly clear message that they are, you know, if not all, uh, excited about getting rid of Assad. But at this point, they are willing to um, firmly say that there is a there is a line here that certain certain war crimes, certain crimes against humanity, uh, if the, that's indeed what we saw in Syria, won't be tolerated, and that they are willing to give the the U.S. Secretary of State a clear mandate to tell the Russian government that you need to rein in your ally, you need to control them, that the, the West is increasingly getting unified on the response to Syria. And that, at this point, I think it's nothing, the, the meeting today, the trip today, is nothing more than a matter of making sure that um, Rex Tillerson makes U.S. policy, as much as he knows what U.S. policy is, makes it clear 
to uh, to the Kremlin what the United States expects, why they launched this airstrike last week, and how they'll behave in the future. Uh, where is Putin on these chemical attacks? I mean, is it true he's calling them fake chemical attacks? Uh, there have been you know, not so much fake, but the the Russian line at various times has been that, in fact, these were not these nerve agents, it looks like it was a nerve agent that was used in Idlib province, uh, that these nerve agents were stockpiled by, by rebel groups. They were not owned by the, uh, the Syrian uh, government. They were not deployed by the Syrian government. Uh, so it's essentially uh, the, the Russian government is, is washing their, their, trying to wash their hands of this because, of course, the Russian government did agree to, be, to disarm Syria of its its chemical weapons stockpiles in 2013. So they're not quite saying it didn't happen and this is a fabrication, but they are they are they're they're telling a very interesting story without a without much evidence to substantiate it because um, no one that I have encountered has credibly made the claim that there's any rebel group or terrorist group in Syria that's capable of manufacturing uh, nerve agents. You know, which are which is a big step up from chlorine gas or mustard gas. We've seen those used, but to manufacture nerve agents—that's not something you do um, easily or, or 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 in a in a slapdash uh, workshop. So they're saying that it it wasn't the Syrian government that it that it it probably was a rebel group, but they're not offering much of a much evidence to to support their claims. And and he wants the UN to investigate this. Doesn't that seem odd? Well, it depends. The important thing to remember is that sometimes uh, you bring the UN in and they can do a very good job if you allow them to. It's, it's always important to remember that practically every really useful power that the United Nations has or that the United Nations organization has, you know, to, to conduct a war crimes investigation, to... Uh, or if we're talking about the International Atomic Energy Agency, they can inspect nuclear sites or the uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. They would be the ones who would do this. They always work on a mandate from a government, right? They, they uh, even um, in 2013, after the, the Gouda uh, chemical weapons attacks, it was, you know, some strong-arm diplomacy by the U.S., agreement with Russia, that got the Syrian government to agree to allow people in. It's often possible to concoct a a mandate for, for example, chemical weapons inspectors that essentially hamstrings the inspectors, that doesn't allow them to actually do the work they need to do to get to the bottom of what happened. And then it gives you plausible deniability, saying, look, we allowed inspectors in, we were transparent, and they found nothing. When, in fact, if you look at the the rules that they had to follow, if you look at the mandate they were given by, say, the Syrian government or the uh, and the Russian government, it could be, in fact, a, a very weak mandate, like telling police they can investigate a murder, but they're not allowed to talk to any witnesses. It would be that, that sort of analogy. So it's possible that this is simply a diplomatic stalling tactic and that, you know, Russia would allow an investigation of this attack, but they would put a, a lot of constraints on the investigators. It's one thing to have Trump flip-flop or whatever you want to describe it and, and talk tough and, and launch an attack like this. But when you get Rex Tillerson say, you know, you can either get be on our side or their side, uh, uh, you know, and basically the reign of this family is coming to an end. Uh, and by the way, here I am. Uh, where does Putin stand on all of that? You know, my suspicion... And I mean, does he not feel the pressure or even the noose around his neck? Well... 
let's put it this way. I mean, uh, the the Kremlin has demonstrated that they're they're very good at managing challenges and crises. Um, the Russian economy has endured, you know, a, a cratering of oil prices and other commodity prices the last couple of years. They've uh, endured some really tough sanctions for their invasion of Ukraine, and they're still keeping, you know, the, the ship of state afloat. And uh, Putin and his party are still very popular. So I think they're fairly confident in their ability to manage these challenges. Uh, but this is, I think, uh, I think this did in some ways catch. The Russian government off guard, since you had a you had a U.S. government which everybody thought was really taking one distinct line on Syria, which was we don't really care about Bashar al-Assad. We're here to defeat ISIS. What Russia does with the Syrian government is their business as long as they don't interfere, undermine our effort to get rid of ISIS. And then suddenly, on a dime, on one the heels of one tragic event that policy flipped or looks like it's flipping. Putin, I, I think, and his advisors in the Kremlin, they, I mean, they certainly, they, this is certainly not their ideal situation. I imagine what they are, what they are thinking about, and have probably been thinking about for a while, is that they, they know that uh, a post-war Syria with Assad in complete control, with the Assad clan in complete control of the country is a a really tough sell, and, and, and one that's just simply unrealistic and that even if the you know Bashar al-Assad remains president at least in name it will be a severely diminished presidency a much weaker presidency so at this point they need to think about how do we safeguard our interests in Syria how do we maintain influence in the post war government there how do we make sure that uh, we continue to get access to Syria's naval bases so that you know we can look after our interests in the middle east by you know basing basing ships there, basing planes there. So they might very well be willing to trade Assad's fate for some kind of deal that keeps them, that protects their interests in Syria. I don't think they're there yet. I think they want to figure out, is this all a bluff from the Americans? You know, Tillerson is coming with this message, but, you know, the fact is a week ago their 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 policy was very different. I think they are, are still observing and trying to figure out how this government works. But at the same time, they know that um, preserving the uh, the Assad government and, and having and, and flipping, like turning the clock back to the way it was before the war yeah. is not realistic. So how does Putin sell that he's changing teams? How does he sell that to his own people? How does he sell that to the rest of the world and still come out with his chin high? I think it will be simpler to sell it to Russians than it will be to, say, Tehran, you know, and then and, and, and the Iranian government, where um, Russia has been cultivating kind of a, a very opportunistic relationship. When selling it to the Russian people, when selling it to uh, his party, to the Duma, I mean, make it clear that, you know, this is really about Russian interests, and Russian interests ultimately come before you know, Syrian interests, at least as far as the president of Russia is concerned. But let's always also remember there there will probably be, you know, a golden parachute for um, the Assad family if indeed they do, if indeed Russia gets a say in the way they step down. I don't anticipate that uh, Assad would allow something to happen. Uh, sorry, I don't anticipate Putin would allow something to happen to the Assad family like happened to the Gaddafi family in Libya, where 
where literally uh, Muammar Gaddafi was was killed in the streets. Um, there will be an effort to find, you know, an off ramp for the the Assad family exile, some maybe a, 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 some titles in the new government for some Assad uh, family members, but but and really just titles, not an office that they can do much with. And and there will be efforts to, you know, reassure the Iranians that, you know, we're not completely selling your guy out. In fact, he probably will sell him out. But that, that will be the real challenge is to find a way to um, to convince Iranians and and Arab countries that that uh, Putin has pledged to support, like you know Egypt, that in fact we are a solid ally. Finding that finding that that line will be difficult. Will Tillerson and Putin meet, uh, considering their past relationship? No, I don't think so. I think they're going to stick with the events of this last week. They're really going to stick with protocol, which, you know, Tillerson is the Secretary of State, so he will meet with his counterpart, and and Vladimir Putin will not uh, diminish his own standing by, you know, meeting with simply a a foreign secretary. I mean, Putin will wait for Trump to come visit him, but I do not think that he will give give Tillerson a a face-to-face meeting. Uh, Tillerson gaining credibility. You know that it's hard to say. I would say it's you know it's been a rough week for him. I think because of the the, the rapid flip flop and the, the the change in policy, it will depend on how he plays the next you know couple of weeks. If it looks like uh, the United States is going to settle on a consistent Syria policy, and if it looks like it's going to be Tillerson who articulates that policy rather than the ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. I mean, she's been very outspoken about, you know, maybe maybe regime change is on the table now. Maybe the United States is willing to do more. And that's understandable because she has to directly deal with her Russian counterpart in the United Nations with the Security Council. She's got a very important role here. But typically, everybody understands the Secretary of State outranks the the ambassador to the United Nations. So if Tillerson can deliver this message if he doesn't waffle on it, and if he's consistent and, and, and is allowed to lay out a coherent policy over the next couple of weeks, uh, then Tillerson could start to really look like a, you know, a credible and effective Secretary of State. But it's, it's still early, and I mean, we have to remember, he's, he, diplomacy is new to this man. He's still learning on the job, and this is a, this is a hard crisis to learn in. That being said, his past relationship with the Russians, do they view him in a more trustworthy light as opposed to some other politician in that seat? Well, whether or not they, they trust him, I, I can't Maybe trust is, the, is, the, is not the accurate word, but you know, is, there, is there a warming of a relationship there? I would suspect that they probably feel they understand him better. You know, yeah. um, diplomacy... Diplomacy is sort of a, it's an odd job in that you often say one thing publicly, another thing privately, and everybody understands that. Um, But Tillerson, you know, though he's a neophyte, he comes into this with a track record, particularly with this Russian government. There might be, you know, some opportunities in the sense that his Russian counterparts, they know him. They've observed him. They've observed him more than they've observed, you know, Donald Trump in, in office. I mean, they haven't, they haven't observed Rex Tillerson in office for very long. He's only been there 90-some days, but they've observed him traveling around the world in the past, working with Russia in the past. So they probably feel they know him better and can read his patterns a bit better, and that might help things things out. 
So obviously Tillerson, much like Donald Trump did, drew a line in the sand and said, you're either with us or you're not. Uh, you're with Assad. How does this end? And do you think, Simon, this is the beginning of a world team against terror? We've talked about this in the past. The, you know, once all the tap dancing's done, could we all, could all of the good forces be pointing in the same direction of evil? I mean, that's, op- that's often a hope and a, and. I'm not going to say we're there yet, but in a, a few things, a few things happen. This this could potentially, you know, end up being a good thing. I mean, the one, the first is that it looks like first this chemical weapons attack and this airstrike it really spurred kind of uh, the United States' Western partners to get maybe a little bit more assertive and forceful with the United States. Uh, the, the G7 meeting in Italy is a perfect example. Just saying that, you know, fact is, it's the United States that's going to have to lead on this because it, they're one of the few countries in the world that the Kremlin will listen to and take seriously. So when you have Canada, the United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, those NATO allies, you have Japan on board, if they're on the same page about how to deal with Assad, you know, is this sort of a, a red line and we have to get him out one way or another? then that at least, you know, it's easier for those countries to get together and put pressure on the United States than for them to try to do it individually. So that that's a good thing. The challenge still remains, is Canada, is Germany, or the United Kingdom, are all these Western allies, are they willing to make that, you know, proverbial, you know, deal with the devil and say, we understand Russia has, you know, some legitimate interests in Syria, and we're willing to back the United States in an effort to, to make a deal that, gets rid of Assad, keeps Russia influ- Russian influence in Syria, and we work on a peace plan that has Russia at the table. That's going to be hard because there's going to be some uncomfortable you know, moral compromises to make there. Some Arab nations really won't want Russia at the table. But these sorts of events, these kind of horrifying events, they do focus the mind and they do remind people about what's at stake. And if if the West gets coherent, gets on the same page, it'll give you know the United States a much stronger hand when dealing with Russia, and that that could be productive. And if that worked, if if the United States, the West, Russia, the Arab world were able to make a compromise in the fate of Syria, then you could perhaps see more you know counterterrorism cooperation. But that's still, I mean, that's still off on the horizon. I think. As we spoke before, uh, there was a certain uh, feeling about this presidency. And then, of course, uh, it, that changed for some after uh, Donald Trump's retaliation uh, for the chemical attacks. Uh, interesting, um, Dan Rather has spoken up and said that uh, you can't be hailing Don- Donald Trump as being more presidential because he dropped a bomb. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think Rather has a good point. If I recall, he was speaking, you know, directly about journalists who were who were suddenly, you know, praising Trump. And I mean, there's always that question about should journalists really just stick to reporting? Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand the media environment we're in now. Um, when people look for the news, they also look for opinion. They look for analysis. So there, there, there are those pressures on journalists to kind of do it all. But. Um, you know, I mean, I have to be very clear and careful here. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that this airstrike on the Syrian airbase could be, a, you know, a positive thing if it spurs people to, you know, 
take efforts to end the war more seriously. However, if this was like like some analysts have argued that this is more evidence of a of a weak president, one that doesn't really have a clear idea about um, how force should be used, a clear idea about America's role in the world, a clear idea about how he wants to achieve America's goals in the world, and this was simply an impulsive an impulsive move or simply taking the advice of uh, of longtime um, you know civil servants who have been in favor of this sort of action against the Assad regime for a while and that this White House House has no real plan on how to follow through and capitalize on this, then it really could all fall apart and we and you know we could be looking at the Donald Trump of you know a week and a half ago mm. rather than the Donald Trump of this week. So I mean I think Rather's right in two ways. One, I mean the, the media issue, that's a thorny one, and I can't tell journalists how to report. But I think we do have to be careful that simply using force doesn't mean you have a plan. It could look decisive, but it could end up just, it could be ending, and it could end in tears very easily if you don't follow through properly. Simon Palomar has been with us, research fellow, expert on Canadian foreign policy, arms control, political violence, the Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Well, thank you, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this yesterday, and um, uh, and I'm sure you've all seen the video by now of... Uh, of a man being dragged out of a United Air off of a United Airlines uh, plane, uh, the backlash continues uh, over United Airlines and the forcible removal of a passenger. Uh, apparently, shares of the company have slumped uh, due to uh, the, of course, bad PR that came from this situation. In which I guess uh, the plane was overbooked, which happens a lot, from what I understand, and that's because people just don't show up for their flights for whatever reason. So they overbook the flight, and if something happens that someone has to get bumped, uh, they usually give you a voucher of some sort. And uh, I guess they had tried that, uh, offering people 400 bucks to get off, 800 bucks to get off. No takers. Keep going. Uh, almost sounds like a game show here. And then obviously uh, no, one, uh, no one bit. No one wanted to remove themselves. So four other people who I understand were United employees or employees of another airline, um, a connecting airline, and they had to make it to. Uh, they had to make the flight in order to keep the planes going, in order to work. So uh, these four. It wasn't like they were going on vacation. I don't believe. Uh, so four people had to be bumped in order to accommodate these employees that had to get to their next uh, assignment. A little odd that this didn't happen outside the plane as opposed to inside the plane. Uh, I'm not sure of all the details there, but obviously they got into the plane uh, when they decided they had this issue uh, with overbooking. And uh, I guess at that point, they just randomly go, you, you, and you. I'd just like to be that guy. Uh, so the man decided, and he, he wasn't a young guy. I understand he was around 70. Uh, was picked up and forcibly removed from the plane, literally dragged down uh, the center aisleway of the plane and uh, off. Now, here's the other question. Like, obviously, the uh, the plane at this point, everybody's just in shock. They're wondering what the heck's going on. Although, if you look at the picture of the video and see the guy that was sitting directly in front of him, he looked like he was on a ride at Disney. He looked like he was on the teacup. He had a big smile on his face. I'm not sure if that was a nervous smile. I mean, if I had heard the commotion of three people take removing somebody 
you know, from the seat behind me. I think I would have got the heck off. I would have ran. Although nobody probably wanted to move in fear of giving up their seat. All of a sudden, some guy stands up. Well, there's a seat. Let's get him off. You can stay, sir. Your nose is all bloody anyway. So, uh, obviously, you know, not good procedure, I guess, for... uh, for, for United Airlines, and but what happens to the person, whether it's an employee or whatever, that sits down afterwards? So the whole plane's in shock. Everybody's just going, oh, oh, I can't believe what just happened. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, Buddy comes on. Hey, we're in his earbuds. How's everybody doing? Hey, can I get some uh, cocktail and some peanuts back here? So how's the flight? Do you want the window seat? Everybody just be staring at the guy. That'd be worse than getting dragged off probably. Uh, to talk about uh, the messes that we are now, uh, of course, uh, provided with, courtesy of social media, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR, uh, communications principal there, uh, columnist for HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily as well, with us now. Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm just fine, Scott. So how are you? I'm doing very well. So how do you forcibly remove somebody from an airplane without it ending up on social media? <laughs> well, uh, easy answer, you don't. Um, this is really the, the gift that keeps on giving this video, and, and not in a good way for United. You know, this is turning into a veritable nightmare, and it makes me think that, you know, I, I can't believe that United doesn't have Crisis Communications Council, and if they do, then I'm pretty sure that they didn't listen to them. Because this is uh, another one of those case studies where you go down the list and you think, wrong, 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 wrong. So uh, this is this is this is really quite something. Uh, and you, you have to think it, it certainly wouldn't be the first time someone's had to be forcibly removed from an airplane. Um, uh, I guess there's no real nice way to do that. How do you make the decision? You know, how does it go from asking somebody to uh, to perhaps take an, a, a later flight, and here we're going to offer you a voucher to do so? How does it transpire from that to all right? If no one goes. <laughs> No one wants to go. We start kicking ass and taking names. Well, I think that there was a lot of things that we don't know about how this went down. I mean, most of us have flown, and most of us know that usually while you're in the, you know, the boarding area, they say, okay, we're overbooked. Um, We're going to offer, you know, fill-in-the-blank incentive for the four people who be willing to give up this trip and fly United anywhere in the world because we need the four seats. Normally, that's where that happens. I have flown quite a bit, and I've never seen this happen on an air flight. No, apparently, usually there's someone willing to give up for the voucher and such, but exactly. I guess it, I guess it didn't happen this time. when you're on the plane, though. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps these four people quickly sauntered up to the counter, got up to the counter, said, listen, we're employees, we've got to get here, yeah. we've chosen your flight, now you've got to kick four people off. And I'm sure that the gate agent said, but everybody's boarded, we don't care, you need to kick four people off. So, you know, right away, that there, there's a protocol to doing this, one that we as consumers know about. And then there's the protocol of, you know, having four people from United, we don't know what their positions are, and saying to the gate agent, kick four people off the plane. So you have to know that, that there's going to be ramifications right there. You know, you, you're, this is a customer-oriented business. You can't tick off your customers by throwing them off a plane when the airline <laughs> industry itself is under constant scrutiny. You know, that's the first thing. So, you know, this happens that three people willingly get off and one, and one fellow, the fellow that we saw being dragged through the aisles, literally with his hands over his head, with a bleeding lip, dragged through the aisles, 
and is forcibly taken off the plane. And therefore, everything gets held up. Even when the four um, United employees get back on the plane, I mean, people still have to wait. So there's no positive gain in this. And, you know, so there's a number of things that went wrong. A, the breaking of protocol. B, the fact that, gee, what will happen um, if we do break this protocol? C, if we actually drag somebody off the plane, and this is not new, when people, when something happens on a plane, the first thing, what are the first thing people do is they don't call for help, they get out their phones. So here's a video that could potentially go viral, and you know what? You, that's a really, really hard thing that you can't control. And D, what happened was once this went uh, viral, out of their control, you cannot contain this, not for love or for money or begging Twitter to, to, to take it down, is that they came out with a real quasi-apology. Yeah, they didn't really still seem uh, too sincere about this. Is, is, the, is the magic line here the fact that they were on the plane? Anything that happens prior to boarding is one thing, but once you got your ticket in your hand and your butt's in a seat, that's yours, is it not? Well, you know, listen, absolutely. You know, here's the thing. There's a stat here that said, you know, about United, the um, 86 million people who boarded a flight in United in in 2016, out of that, um, 3,765 people are asked uh, to leave over an oversold flight. And that's just of United itself, not of its traveling partners. Okay. Mm -hmm. And another 62,000 plus United passengers volunteered to give up their seats. So 62,000 people volunteered and 3,700 were forced. So that seems like a very small percentage out of 86 million, and that's probably how United is looking at this, right? So if you look at the pure and simple numbers, this is like, okay, this is a drop in a bucket for us. What is the big deal? The big deal is that there was video. The big deal is that there's public outrage. And maybe 10 years ago, they could have thought, well, this is a drop in the bucket. We'll take our lumps for 24 hours in the media, and then it's going to go away. This is not going away. And the fact that they didn't really say, I'm sorry, or we apologize, you know, companies can't get away with sitting on their you know, uh, an, on an ivory tower and saying, well, this is just the way we do business, you know, uh, love it or leave it. They can't do that anymore. Further proof of an already po- a skeptical public, obviously. Well, exactly. And, you know, you cannot really recover from something like this that easily. You know, do you remember, this isn't exactly the same, but one of the analogies that I came up with was, remember the BP oil spill? Mm-hmm. Yep. There was um, the CEO of BP after a while. This is very arduous work, and he was constantly being interviewed. The one thing he said was, really, God, you stop bothering me, and I really just want to go on vacation. Hmm. Well, as soon as he um, projected disdain for those who you know cared about the spill and cared about wildlife, uh, it was, you know, he took a, a public beating, and so did BP. And it took them years and years of um, commercials. Yeah, they, and they put a lot into that. Events yeah. To show that they really cared. Hmm. Um, so, uh, what you, you, you talked about this victim, what's he going to get out of this? How do you make it right from his standpoint? And is there ever, I, I guess none of that will counteract the viral uh, video or the video that went out as a result. You know, United could have stemmed um, the anger uh, that is now projected towards them by uh, right away saying, we apologize for what happened. Yeah, jump on it right away. Yeah. And they didn't do that. They could have just stopped it right dead in its tracks. 
And instead, they dug in their heels and said, we were right. This is what we need to do. When our employees need to get somewhere, people, regular consumers have to leave, and it's us first. Well, you know. <laughs> That's a pretty hard, uh, you know. Big well, can they use the excuse though? Uh, these were employees that were just trying to keep the whole network up and running. You know, we don't want to sacrifice a whole plane load of passengers just for four. Well, you know, this is it, and you know, this is an entrenched philosophy that obviously we're employees. You're just the passengers, and we are better than you. So, what, what, like, what if they ask somebody? I mean, they have to have in their toolkit an answer if someone says, no, I'm not leaving. Well, you know, of course they do. I mean, this isn't something that... And again, it's not like it's their I mean, mistake. They, it's they not like it's a drunken, unruly... It's, it's not like it's a drunken, unruly passenger. This is someone who <laughs> legitimately deserves to be there. Well, what and, if and they say okay, no? So they've done this. Let's do the math. They've done this. They've forced people off the plane 3,700 times. Mm-hmm. So they've had 3,700 times to come up with some sort of training manual (laughs) that goes out to all employees and they spend some time or a few hours with people, with gate agents, with, you know, the uh, flight crew, and they say, okay, this is what happens if this happens. So you presume that that has been done because United obviously has a crisis communications playbook, and this is probably one of the scenarios. You know, you have these playbooks because it's it's for the the if and the then. Well, it's, even you know, if if this happens, then we do that. Even the picking of the four people that have to be removed. How do you do that? Well, that was look. Uh, I, I mean, you do it alphabetically. Sure did it, but I think they did it out of a hat. Do you do you draw out of a hat? Is that the best way to do this? I have no idea how that works. You know, did somebody pull up the flight manifesto or the flight list and then close their eyes and go, "Bing," you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So if you are uh, in that seat, what do you think he's getting? You know, I don't know. I mean, he could get almost anything he wants now. I think uh, one of the, I think I heard, and this may or may not be true, that he wants United to fly him anywhere he wants for the rest of his life. Wow. Well, thank God he's 70. I mean, if he was yeah. 20, it would have been a real... <laughs> Good point. That's right. Wow. But, you know, I can't imagine what this this gentleman is going to ask for, but I can tell you what I would be asking United to do is is to review their crisis communications policies, review their protocol. I think they have to stem this tide now and say, you know, this is what we're doing. And I'll tell you, I mean, the other part of this is that, you know, I just read an article that says Chicago, the city of Chicago itself, I was, just, I was about to ask they you don't that. have enough problems. Exactly. Is this a black eye for them, too? Well, or do, do people, will they, people you know, compare that? Chicago, uh, th- th- this, is, this is really, you know, Chicago has been in the spotlight for a long time now, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been good news. So now, as a tangential sort of effect, the ripple effect of this is that now the city is getting a black eye. So, you know, United doesn't have too many fans right now. What do our other airlines learn from this, other than how not to remove a passenger from a plane, of course? Well, you know, I mean, they're all, you know, it, it's sort of there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I have to be honest. It could, this could happen anytime, anywhere. But if you don't look at this as a case study and then gather your, you know, go to your HR or go to your compliance and protocol people and say, okay, we cannot let this happen. This, you know, we need to train people or we need to send out a directive on how you deal with this situation. So I would hope that every airline who has seen this, and and the airline out of the U.S. that forces more people off their planes is actually Southwest. 
But I guess because they're known for having such a sort of their brand is like a very goofy or jokey personality, right. nobody takes it seriously. So maybe that's how they get away with it. But um, every airline should be taking this and taking action today and working on informing their employees on how to best handle the situation. Is the compensation usually the same for bumping somebody with all airlines? Maybe that's the key. If the prize is good enough, people won't care. You won't get into your scenario. Well, we'll you get know, into it's interesting scenario. because I think everybody knows the game. First you offer, I don't know, a low amount, then you go a little higher. It's almost yeah. like an auction. Oh, it was four, 200 and 400. Oh, now that it's 800? Okay, yeah, I can deal with that. Yeah. And then you say, okay, I'll take it. So, you know, it's a bit of a game. So everybody waits for the airlines to offer their top dollar. Yeah. And, you know, they think, you know, they're, they're all... It turns into let's make a deal while you're taxiing. Well, and they're playing their customers for stooges, yeah. really. Like, do you think that the customers are stupid? Do you think they don't know this? Do you think this is that maybe their first time in yeah. a boarding lounge? And maybe it is. And maybe they're counting on that. But honestly, it shows a great deal of disrespect for their customers' intelligence. Are you surprised that their shares dropped? No. No. And I'll tell you something else. I mean, like, I'm following their the Twitter feed. And you just you know type United mm-hmm. Airlines into the uh, search engine. And the tweets are going faster, you know, flying faster in this column than anything else. Is that because people are just have had it with air travel, or is this the magnitude of this event? It's, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, people, you hear stories every day. I think there was a Canadian couple who was told to get off the airplane because it was oversold. Um, you know, the airline industry as a whole is having a very big image problem. But, I mean, this is driven largely by themselves. You know, I always tell my clients when I counsel people, crises, yes, will drop out of the sky, usually, you know, on Tuesday at 4 p.m. But uh, by and large, you do it to yourself. So in this case, United is honestly doing this to themselves, and the airline industry continues to do this to themselves as long as um, they follow this practice. Imagine mood, the mood in the airplane once it did finally take off and how in the stairs that person would have got who took the seat. Um, you know, I, I wonder about that, and you don't really hear about it. I, I'm sure that, you know, nobody's really talking about that, to be quite honest. Uh, do you think this is going away? Will this just be another airline story, or do you think uh, we'll actually see change in the industry here in any way? You know what? I mean, one can only hope. One can only hope there will be. And, and you know, there are, you know, there are other airlines who could, uh, you know, in some way, shape, or form, although it's not really a, a great practice, but could capitalize this and say, you know, with a maybe treat your, you know, we treat our customers with respect campaign. Sorry, go ahead. And yeah, so I mean, you know, people could do that, but you know, uh, putting out a campaign that capitalizes on a competitor's misfortunes isn't necessarily great PR, especially when it happens to you too. Yeah. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, Principal Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. I guess uh, it's no secret that uh, Hamilton has uh, been a busy place when it comes to uh, the making of movies, uh, so much so that uh, even local crews have established themselves in Hamilton. Obviously, the value of the dollar has a lot to do with this, uh, but we're certainly it's certainly not our first rodeo. And, uh, you know, the days of uh, one or two coming in over the course of the year has uh, certainly opened up uh, some floodgates. Let's talk to Julia Davies. She is the film uh, film operations specialist with the City of Hamilton's Tourism and Culture Division and on the line with us now. Hello, Julia. How are you today? 
I'm good. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. How long has there been a film operations person that does this? You know, the industry's been in Hamilton um, for, for the better part of 30 years, but our office has been around since the year 2000, one of the pioneers in the province. So we have, uh, we have a good baseline, and, you know, every year's ramping up. So, yeah, almost 20 years, 17 years to this point. When did you finally realize that, you know, maybe we better put somebody on this all the time? You know, that was, that was long before my time with the city, but uh, I think it, it began in economic development, again, back in, back in the late 90s and then developed in 2000. And it was just a way to provide the service to the industry, and that's our reputation. So we wanted to, to keep the quality of life, balance the industry needs with the resident needs, and uh, develop the office 17 years ago. And we've been, you know, keeping up with the industry trends and, and we're one of we're one of the busiest in the province of Ontario. So, you know, I think we're doing some things right. Is this about creating a vibrant industry or is it more about just trying to uh, referee and negotiate uh, between a city and when a movie company comes to town and keeping everybody happy? Overall, it's really developing our creative industries and keeping that vibrancy of Hamilton growing and improving um, you know, the last 10 years, as we all know, we've seen a renaissance in Hamilton, and the film industry has been there all the way through. 10, 15 years ago, we were always portrayed as Detroit or Brooklyn, and now we're seeing more New York and Montreal. So we can really facilitate um, that vibrancy in Hamilton and showcase to and play to many different productions. Um, and with that, it's, you know, increasing the quality of life and exposing Hamilton to really the world, uh, and that's what we're really hoping to do. That's got to be encouraging to know that we're just not being stereotyped when it comes to a certain type of shoot. Oh, not at all. I mean, we we are getting more and more diverse. I actually had a meeting earlier today, and we're looking at areas that can play for um, Montreal, uh, Chicago, and then Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're looking to do a whole feature film here. Um, And different areas of the city can facilitate that. Some of our natural areas can facilitate that. And I think that we can boast that, and not a lot of other places across the province uh, can do that. So how, we're excited. How many productions are going on at any given time? It really varies. Um, right now, we only have about a half dozen, but at our peak, um, normally end of August to end of October, we could have anywhere 20 concurrent productions happening in the city. Um, to date this year, in, in the first three months, we've already worked with 33 different productions. So, so uh, we're busy. Are there busy times? Are there peak times? There are peak times. Uh, of course, we, we deal with location shooting, so outside the studio. So when the weather is nice, we're always busier. Um, but normally our key times are September and October. That's when we see the, the most amount of business in the city. How do you explain that? Um, I think it's we do a lot of work with television series. Mm-hmm. So as new seasons start on the major networks, they're, they're filming their first half of their season in, in those time frames, new shows that are just picked up. So that's when your budgets are approved, and that's when you want to get the majority of your first half of your episodes filmed all at once. And I think that's why we're seeing the most business in that time frame. Uh, why, are, why is Hamilton so attractive? We, as I, as I said earlier, we can, we can play for a lot of different places across the world, but we're so lucky in that we're such a large geographic area, and we can play, we have urban, we have rural, we have heritage, we have industrial, we have natural, so we really are diverse. Um, we, can, we can be any era, we can be anywhere in the world, and that's very attractive because you can film a lot in a, in a short, small geographic area. What about from a business standpoint, what makes us so attractive? 
Um, I think in terms of the businesses in Hamilton and the city itself, we're open for business. We are customer service driven. We're building our infrastructure for businesses locally that can support the industry. Um, and so people want to move here, live here, work here, play here. So in, in conjunction with our business development folks and our film office, um, we're trying to make it a one-stop shop for the industry to draw more business to Hamilton. Talk about those supportive industries, those industries that may open up here to support these productions coming in from virtually all over the place, not just the United States. How has it created a sub-industry in Hamilton? So I think for, for a lot of these businesses, such as caterers or wig makers, local small businesses that can support the prop side of Hamilton that have a specialty in the industry um, where it's, it's not their core business, but it's enhancing what they already do best and what they're experts in. And it's really making, it, as I said, a one-stop shop for the film industry and growing um, what we have to offer here in Hamilton um, and playing off, you know, the great businesses that are already in Toronto. We're, we're learning from them and growing here in Hamilton. Uh, what about the role of the low dollar? And does it, does, do, do you see productions change location when it goes up or down? Well, definitely the trend. I mean, with the lower dollar, of course, right now, if you have a $10 million budget, it's one, it's $13.5 million in Canada. So that's definitely attractive and drawing folks to Ontario and Canada as a whole. Um, and as well, there's some great tax credits that help enhance that and draw people to Hamilton, and they're offered um, by the provincial and federal government. Um, so shooting... Um, outside the GTA, so with Hamilton, using local crew, hiring local talent, hiring local suppliers, you could get up to another 35% in tax credits. So all of that makes it really attractive for the industry to come to Ontario and ultimately to come to Hamilton and, and beyond. Uh, any idea how many are employed in Hamilton in those sub-industries? At this point, we're actually in the midst of looking at doing a study on that. We, we know that safe to say hundreds of people have moved here in the past 17 years since we started the office, mm -hmm. but that's one of the goals for our office this year, is to get a better handle on those stats and, and who's living and working in Hamilton um, and, and what the feedback is from crews on what they're experiencing when they come to Hamilton. So where do you go with this? I mean, you know, at one point it was sort of a novelty. Obviously now it's, it's a full-fledged business uh, that we have here in industry and, and sub-industries and such. W what's the future? How big can this get? How do you plan for the future? I mean, we work really closely with the Ontario Media Development Corporation, who is our provincial governing body, on the trends that they're seeing and what the needs are of the industry. As well, um, we have a plan this year within our office to work with local businesses, local industry, to educate them on how they can get involved with the film industry and what some of the requirements are. We have a good base, but we want to continue to grow that. So in working with the province, as well as locally with our economic development, um, and our local industries, we, we want to continue to grow it and have that infrastructure base. And we, we don't know how big it can go, but we aren't, we aren't going to stop trying. We just assume that a lot of these productions or the majority of these productions are from the United States. They're not all from the States, though, are they? 
No, we do uh, a lot of uh, local um, and domestic content is being developed right now. Um, so a lot of Canadian, and we do a lot of co-ventures as well with its Canadian producers, Canadian directors, but it um, might be English or European content providers, screenwriters. So we do a lot of co-ventures. So we really are international um, across the world, and it's continuing to grow. Um, so it's, it's by no means just American, um, and, and that's good news for us because we're diversifying. Here's what Mayor Fred Eisenberger had to say about our movie industry. The waterfront uh, locations, uh, Dundas locations, uh, actually Leuna Station, uh, you know, all of them vintage locations that are very attractive to uh, film shoots and, and the benefit of the tax benefit, which has been in place for a while, and God bless the Ontario government for keeping it in place. So what about the city? What about uh, council? What about local businesses? Are they supportive of this? Or, or is there still some, some mending offenses when productions come to town? They can be disruptive. Or, or for the most part, does everybody get along on, on this? I mean, we definitely have the support of the city, um, of the residents. We One of the mandates last year and continuing this year of our office was working closely with residents and the industry to balance um, and maintain the quality of life for these residents Um, and, you know, have them working with productions and getting people excited. So we're very cognizant of that, of the service we provide to the industry, but also the community. And we're, we're boots to the ground visiting sets, making sure they're adhering to permits um, to keep, you know, that excitement going and keep everyone happy. So we definitely have, have the, the support of, of the city as a whole. Uh, is our gain Toronto's loss? Absolutely not. I, I think um, we work in partnership with the Toronto Film and Television Office. Um, they are oversaturated. They are full. Um, and so working with them we're having them, um, you know, let people know that Hamilton is here and how close we are and some of the things that we have. So, no, we definitely work in a partnership with them, um, and, and their overflow is, is our huge gain. So what can you learn from them, how they have done it? Because, again, I know there's been issues with them and blocking roads and such in the past, and obviously they've got more of a handle on that than they did uh, before this whole industry started exploding. What can you learn from them on this? I think, you know, we're in constant contact with them and talking to them about some of their best practices. Um, and should we get to the levels that they are at, I think we'll, we'll learn from some of the reactionary things that they've done and try to be proactive. But again, they, we are very similar in the way that we work with businesses, work with residents to balance the needs of the community and the needs of the industry and have the industry work together and be aware of the impact they're having. So I think, you know, in our conversations, they're a wealth of knowledge to us, and, and we're a wealth of knowledge to them as well. Has the word gotten out to Hollywood that Hamilton's here and that uh, there's a lot of great things happening here? We we are definitely working closely with the, the Toronto Film Office. Whenever they're heading out there, um, again, the, the OMDC, the Ontario Media Development Corporation, we're getting... Our images out there, our reputation out there, uh, the Ontario Media Development Corporation has an online digital library that they curate. Hamilton locations are 10% of that library, and that's the first place that anyone 
looking to, to shoot in Toronto is going. So whether it's Hollywood, whether it's London, England, whether it's somewhere, you know, North Ontario, they're seeing 10% of, of the impact that we have on that website and that digital library. And that's really good news for us. Is that digital library the biggest selling feature for Hamilton? Is that what, how this works? It's a case of looking through images, seeing what the city has to offer as far as landscapes, cityscapes and such? As, as a first point of contact when you're looking to match locations, so if I have a script that I, I need to find certain locations to shoot at, that's the first place I'm going to go. And there, there likely are locations, uh, Hamilton-based locations, that are drawing my attention. And then that's drawing people to Hamilton to see those locations in person. And when they're doing that, they're seeing the rest of the city and the vibrancy that we have and the natural, you know, escarpment that we have and the lake. And so it, it helps to draw people to Hamilton who, who may not have ever shot here um, and to grow the knowledge of what we have even more. Is there anything that we have that has not been used yet that's sort of like a gem or something in the toolbox? Hey, you know what? Someone should do something around Or is it just whenever you're presented with something, you go looking? It's a little, it's, it's mostly go looking or based on experience. Uh, you know, the folks in the film industry are pretty resourceful, and I think they found every hidden gem that we have. Um, yeah, they probably find it before we do. <laughs> in some cases, that has happened, yes. But, you know, it's really diverse. We have filming downtown in Flamborough, in Glanbrook this week. So they're using the whole city, and that's really what we want to let people know. We're not just Hamilton, you know, proper in the downtown core. We are these five other municipalities that have all amalgamated and we're all Hamilton. You know, it's interesting, uh, you're talking about using outside areas like that. You just automatically assume that they want to use something that's a landmark of some sort, like a waterfall or this, that, or the other. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, it really depends what they're looking for. And I've, I've seen things where you, you'd never expect it. I mean, they've used uh, Rebecca Street in the downtown core, and they've turned it into downtown Baghdad. Mm. So they have a different eye. The film industry... Um, personnel have a different eye. They know what they want and, and they can extract things that we would never think of. And I, that's one of the things that's so interesting about my job, because when I get these questions a couple of years down the road, I can go back to these experiences and say, maybe we can do this or maybe we can use that. Um, and it really keeps it interesting uh, and is something that I didn't expect when I stepped into this role. Has this something that has grown uh, uh, quite a bit in the last 20 years, especially as far as growing local crews and local industries and those sub-industries, has that grown substantially in the last 20 years? It has. Um, it really has. Our permits have increased year over year. The amount of productions we work with has increased year over year. Um, and we know that people are moving into Hamilton and businesses are moving here. And that's why we want to do that study this year to get those hard data and to, to understand what the real, you know, the, the deeper impacts of the industry are to our community and our quality of life. What happens when, Julia, we have big things going on in the city like uh, an LRT uh, a project, something of that size? How does that change the complexion of the city as far as a filmmaking perspective? Would we lose stuff because of that? Would we maybe gain stuff because of that? How does the LRT factor into your planning as you move forward? Well, I think, to be honest with you, um, it could we could lose some, but we could gain others. It really depends on the scripts that are out there and the locations that are being looked at. Um, if so, you got a movie with a construction site, we got to be in for that. Then you want to come to Hamilton, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, we, we're seeing it business as usual. We're moving forward. We're looking for some of these outer locations as well. 
to really enhance the product that we have to offer. And, you know... Um, but you obviously have to account for that project moving forward that it's going to take up a certain part of the downtown core for the absolutely. next few years. Absolutely. So how do we, we're, we're going to try to get creative. We're going to let our film companies know, and we're going to look at some of our key locations and come up with a strategy for that. So we definitely have it on our radar, um, and we're looking to see what the content is out there where we're going to need to facilitate their filming. So it's absolutely on our radar. Julia Davies has been with us, film operations specialist with the City of Hamilton's Tourism and Culture Division, shaping up to be another great year in Hamilton for the film industry. Julia, thanks very much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.